Good morning. Uh, welcome to the project on military and diplomatic history at CSIS uh, event series. For those of you who haven't been here before, I'll just give you a little bit of background. I'm Mark Moyer, the uh, director of the program. Uh, we promote history that has uh, that provides a window onto contemporary national security affairs and controversies. Uh, in a time when policy-relevant history is under siege in the academy and under mothballs in the policy community, uh, we um, seek to spread um, and we seek to bring historians to D.C. to, to interact with the policy world. Uh, it's one of the tendencies, I think, from spending too much time in D.C. is you forget how much knowledge resides outside of the Beltway. Uh, and we are of the view that, particularly in the historical community, there's a lot of knowledge uh, in historians who are spread out across the country and the world. And so uh, this program, which uh, just started here at CSIS a few months ago, uh, is intended to bring the historians here to D.C. to talk on, on uh, policy-relevant subjects. Uh, and we hope not only to enlighten you uh, on a, this subject today to some extent, but also to promote a longer-term interest in history and to uh, forge ties with historians. Uh, so I encouraged our speaker uh, to bring lots of business cards and, so that you can uh, trade with him after we are done today and hopefully uh, continue the discussion for uh, for years to come. Going to mention a few of our other upcoming events. We've got a busy November. On uh, November 8th, Natalie Nguyen will be speaking about America's South Vietnamese allies. On November 9th, on the 75th anniversary of the, the invasion of North Africa, we will have Meredith Hindley. Uh, November 13th, we will feature Victor Davis Hanson and his new book on World War II. Uh, November 17th, we have Serhii Plaki talking about his new book on the history of Russia. And if you're not already on our, our mailing list, you can uh, sign up on our website. Um, now, you may have heard that some people allegedly tried to interfere with America's elections last year. Uh, we have, in fact, two Senate committees, a House committee and an independent council who are now looking into the matter. Uh, Controversy has already cost several people their jobs, senior jobs in the U.S. government, uh, and by some reckonings, it, it changed the outcome of the election. Uh, the American public has been uh, barraged with claims from many leading public figures from both political parties that the United States was victimized by an unprecedented interference in our elections. I mean, having been in this business for some time now, I would caution you that whenever you hear the word unprecedented, that you first ask the question, is it really unprecedented? So the, one, the more you study history, the more I think you come towards the view that there really is nothing new uh, under the sun. And after hearing about all this chatter of unprecedented interference, uh, I decided to, to look for historians who, who would actually study the interference of elections uh, as a historical matter, matter. It didn't take long to find several of them. Uh, but out of those, I, I select the one who I think can do the most to help Washington and the world more generally understand this subject. Um, now, for some people, the history of past electoral shenanigans may be satisfaction enough. Uh, it's always good fun to point out the historical ignorance of politicians and journalists. Uh, and those who wish to find fault with the U.S. government or to deplore the hypocrisy of great powers, 
Um, it's easy to revel in revelations that the U.S. government has itself interfered with the elections of other countries. Uh, but we set up today's event for a different purpose, which is to enhance our in understanding and our ability to address a problem that's likely going to be with us for decades to come. So I think given the perceived successes of the, the meddling of 2016 and the difficulties that are inherent in imposing penalties on the perpetrators, it seems all but certain that the various actors will seek to replicate this success in future years. So how can history enable the United States and its allies to contend with future acts of interference in elections? Well, that is the question that we have asked today's speaker to answer, and I will provide a few words of introduction. Uh, Dr. Calder Walton is currently at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where he holds the Ernest May Fellowship, and that happens to be a particular interest to me, since Ernest May was my mentor once upon a time. Um, it's also of broader interest to this program, since Ernest May remains one of the seminal thinkers on the use of history in policy decisions. Uh, and if you haven't already read his 1986 book, Thinking in Time, uh, co-authored with Richard Neustadt, I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, Dr. Walton earned his PhD in history at Cambridge under the supervision of Christopher Andrew, who happened to be my PhD supervisor back in the day as well. Uh, that's also a coincidence. Um, We've actually never met until earlier this year uh, at the ISA annual meeting where his lively historical presentation was a delightful contrast to a lot of the dreary social science that was going on there. Um, at Cambridge, Dr. Walton was the lead researcher on uh, Professor Andrews' authorized history of the British Secret Service, British Security Service, MI5. He's also a qualified English barrister, which in, in American parlance is an attorney and has worked on several high-profile litigation cases involving security issues. Uh, in 2013, he published the book British Intelligence, The Cold War and the Twilight of Empire, which won the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award. And he's currently working on a book about the rise and fall of intelligence superpowers from the 20th century's world wars to cyber warfare today. Uh, and I'd ask, uh, before we begin, please silence your cell phones, pagers, Fitbits, and other electronic devices. Uh, but those who are technologically inclined uh, can follow this conversation on Twitter. And those who are watching us remotely, uh, you can tweet questions if you have them to at CSISPMDH. Um, but uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Calder Walton. First of all, I should say thank you very much, Mark, for the kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, if anyone's going to be starting to tweet questions to me, I'd ask these probably uh, should come from a uh, real-life human being, not a bot that we read about in the news today. Uh, Mark's project, it's great to be here uh, and to be, um, uh, I hope, uh, continued affiliations with Mark, Mark's new project. Um, as Mark had just said, uh, it's certainly an unfashionable subject at the moment. There seems to be um, a, um, a mothballing of diplomatic and military history. Um, at the Kennedy School, we're launching a similar project, the Applied History Project. So I hope that between there and here, there are a few um, beacons of light in an otherwise dark diplomatic and military history um, atmosphere. 
Um, as Mark said, what I really want to, um, to talk about today is try to bring some historical perspective to the, uh, what we read about in the news today uh, with the, um, uh, the, the uh, interference um, by Russia um, in the 2016 presidential election, which seems to be attracting um, headlines every single day. Um, let's try to make sure this works. That does work. Um, every single day, there seems to be another uh, revelation um, about uh, ways in which Russia interfered in the, uh, in the election, uh, from the so-called dirty dossier on Trump to information that was uh, leaked to uh, WikiLeaks. Just two weeks ago, Hillary Clinton in the UK promoting her book uh, went so far as to say what a lot of people have been saying in private, which is WikiLeaks was essentially functioning as a subsidiary of the Russian intelligence services in leaking this material. Um, and these revelations, a lot of them uh, in the news today have been met with uh, shock and surprise. But as Mark was alluding to earlier, I think um, this, is, this is wrong. Uh, what is surprising is that it actually caused any surprise at all. There's actually a long history of Moscow directing its intelligence services to interfere in U.S. presidential elections. And I, I would argue that it's impossible to understand what we read about today without understanding um, the past. Um, and I think that picking up, uh, up on what Mark said again at the, in, in the introduction, um, a lot of this is, a, is addressed in an, in an ahistorical manner. Um, and, and a lot of the journalists reporting this don't seem to know uh, the history. I'm not going to um, level too much um, at the journalists. I'd actually be much more hard on my own profession, historians here. Um, despite the avalanche of records that are now available in archives in both uh, the US and the UK and in other countries, historians are persisting uh, to neglect the role of intelligence in their, in their writing. If you go online, um, and you can do so right after this talk or even during the talk, and go to the online database JSTOR, um, you will find that less than 1% of all entries uh, in a full term, full search term um, on the Cold War links anything to do with the National Security Agency, NSA. That's to say 99% of all entries on JSTOR do not expressly recognize that the NSA played any role in the Cold War. Uh, John Lewis's, um, Gaddis's book, uh, phenomenal uh, and otherwise outstanding book, doesn't mention GCHQ, Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency, once. We're supposed to believe, um, if you look at the history of the Second World War, that yes, there were code breakers operating in the Second World War, but in the post-war years, when the Cold War set in, according to these studies, they stopped work. Now, clearly, something's not right here. Either 99% of JSTOR uh, entries are wrong, um, or the historians are wrong. I would argue quite strongly that it's the, the latter. Um, so why does this matter other than correcting the historical record? Well, I think it, there's a straightforward policy implications here. Uh, graduates and undergraduates, and even those that are curious in history, reading these his, his, um, historical, even the most uh, recently published books, are actually left with misunderstandings and otherwise omissions um, about the role of intelligence um, that they simply do not understand because they can't, because they're not in the books, um, the historical uh, background about the use and abuse of intelligence. Um, the story of, of the, the Russian interference in the 2016 election, I'm sure, is well known to people in, in this room, um, in this city of all places. Um, 
uh, Russian hackers um, apparently hacked into the uh, DNC um, email account of the chairman, Democratic chairman John Podesta, and then set up a series of cover um, um, personas, including the mysterious Guccifer 2.0, that's to say the Romanian hacker who can't speak Romanian, Romanian and leaked it, uh, the, the data pu publicly on WikiLeaks. Um, the 2016, uh, January 2017, before Trump was uh, elected, uh, DNI uh, assessment, uh, which I got up there, um, puts it very bluntly. Quote, we assess with high confidence Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the US presidential election. Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the US democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. We further assess Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump." End of quote. Anyone who's familiar with uh, the reports written by the US and British intelligence communities will be struck that the phrase um, high degree of confidence is uh, striking. Um, and when we look at it historically, we'll find that the same things that they discuss in this report, um, there are the same strategic aims uh, that Russia, um, the Soviet Union had in the past, undermining public faith in the US democratic process. Um, as I said, long history of Russian, uh, what's called active measures. Um, in the West, we might call this uh, covert action. Uh, that's to say, um, not just gathering intelligence on, on opponents and, and other regimes, but actually trying to influence the affairs of other countries. Um, traditionally, we think of this, at least in the Western context, um, in terms of coups and regime changes. But in fact, I think this actually uh, is better, better understood by looking at it as a sort of a spectrum um, of influence operations. Um, from propaganda on the one hand, uh, perhaps attributable or non-attributable to a government in question that's, that's um, disseminating the propaganda, um, through to what's called disinformation, uh, forgeries and, and, and tricks uh, to help inculcate conspiracy theories. Um, and then um, through to actually um, uh, gathering compromising material perhaps on, 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 on politicians, media manipulation, and then outright what's called, at least in the KGB uh, vernacular, special action involving various degrees of violence, including at the most extreme assassinations. Russia was certainly the past master of this from the Bolshevik revolution onwards. Um, and I think it's in this context that we need to, to understand what we read about in terms of the, uh, the so-called Steele dossier, the dossier written by a former MI6 SIS officer, including salacious details. Uh, for those who don't know why it's called the PP dossier or, quote, Wettergate, I'll leave it to you to Google and find out afterwards. Um, stories about sexual escapades aside, uh, the allegation in this dossier is that the SVR today has compromising material on Trump, which, he might be able, which they might be able to use to blackmail him um, in a kind of um, Manchurian candidate style um, phenomenon. Um, who knows if these are true? This is something that um, Robert Mueller there is going to presumably be looking into. Um, but what we can say with certainty that there's a long tradition 
of uh, Russia's intelligences today, their predecessors, doing exactly this um, against their Western opponents. The first head of station, uh, CIA head of station in Moscow, Edward Elias Smith, was compromised um, when he was seduced by a Russian maid who was inevitably in the pay of the KGB, who then tried to use um, photographs of their liaison to blackmail him. He uh, went to the Russian, uh, to the American ambassador at the time, admitted this, and was um, dispatched back to Washington. There's actually a staggering number of um, US officials in the Moscow embassy in the mid-1950s who came forward saying about that they were attempted um, to be the, the victims of blackmail by KGB, uh, 12 in total. Um, it didn't always work. Uh, in one striking example, the um, Stasi, the East German um, security service, uh, attempted to blackmail, again, through a sexual liaison and photographs, um, an Italian politician. The Italian politician said, well, this is great, actually. Can I have some photographs of those? I'd really like to show them. So it didn't always work, but this is a long, uh, long-standing technique. Um, the uh, so-called active measures of the KGB uh, in the Soviet, under the Soviet times was, was carried out by Service A uh, within the Foreign Intelligence Directorate. Um, one uh, K former KGB officer, Oleg Kalugin, described this as, quote, the heart and the soul of Soviet intelligence. Why have I got a picture of a building in the bottom right there? That's what we're reading about further today um, uh, in terms of how um, active measures, covert action, is moving from the physical world into the cyber domain. This is the uh, Russian Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, uh, a, a staff of 90 members. Um, in which they had social media accounts of about six million people in total for a mere $120,000. Um, this was a cheap, effective way of fostering discontent. Just this week, uh, various uh, news outlets, including um, BuzzFeed, have revealed that um, Russian troll, this Russian troll factory essentially was able to um, tap into social discontent within the US, um, promoting um, fake accounts linked to real, uh, genuine um, uh, groups uh, in the US. They set up a fake account called Black Lives Matter, sorry, Black, Ma Black Lives US, which was linked to Black Lives Matter. Um, and in one case I know about that I've read, um, were able to foster a, um, a, a physical protest. Um, so again, this links back to what we said earlier um, in terms of the DNI report about inculcating public distrust in the US. Um, Mark's kindly sort of said already a, a little bit about my research. Um, so just to say something that he didn't mention, my current book is on uh, superpowers and intelligence, um, uh, the, the history of that. I'm also um, just been appointed um, the general editor um, and contributor of a three volume um, Cambridge history of intelligence that will explore the role of intelligence uh, from the ancient world um, all the way to the present day. Uh, this is a daunting task, it's a four to five year project, but I'm excited to be part of it. Um, as Mark also mentioned, um, I was a research assistant on Chris Andrews' um, authorized history of MI5, which involved exciting research part-time uh, in Thames House in MI5's headquarters for six years. Um, oh, and there's some uh, shameless bit of self-promotion with my first book there as well. Um, there's never been a better time to study intelligence history for those who are interested in it. Um, just, just, uh, last, just last year, this year actually, the CIA has made available 
I think, 12 million pages of its declassified records that were previously only available in a um, physically awkward corner of the National Archives um, in College Park. Uh, now you don't even need to leave your, uh, your, your, your room to do this research. Um, there's a staggering number of now declassified British intelligence records at the National Archives in London um, and the uh, presidential archives in various uh, parts of the country. They're crying out to be done. The exciting thing about this project, this area of research, isn't just that we now have access, as never before, to um, Western intelligence documents. We also have um, access to some staggering number of Soviet intelligence documents, uh, no more so than the extraordinary archive um, by uh, the former, a former senior KGB archivist, Vasily Matrokin, which was publicly made available um, for the first time two years ago, um, now in Churchill College, Cambridge. Um, it's been said, and I think it's accurate, uh, that there's now uh, two places in the world where you can study these kind of KGB records. One's in the headquarters of the SVR, and the other's in Churchill College, Cambridge. I think it's reasonably safe to say it's easier to get to Churchill College, Cambridge, than it is to the headquarters of the SVR. Um, this uh, source, um, as, the, as the FBI said, gave them the most complete and extensive intelligence ever received from any source. I would encourage anyone that's interested in, and wants to take this subject seriously to, 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 get, to get a plane ticket to Churchill College, Cambridge, and to have a look um, at what's in there. Um, background to Russia's active measures that we read about today. As I mentioned at the outset, there's a long history of the Kremlin doing anything it could to undermine confidence in the democratic process within the US against what was called then its main adversary, the United States. Prevent politicians uh, coming to power that were um, adverse to the Soviet Union, um, or pre and prevent them winning elections, or if they were in power, minimizing their impact. Um, the active measures unit of the KGB Service A had about 15,000 uh, officers at its height. Uh, they involved planting stories and sponsoring defectors to publicize accounts of CIA dirty work, forgeries uh, linking, for example, the Ku Klux Klan to the, uh, sent to the Olympic committees of various African countries. One of the most staggering conspiracy theories that they promulgated uh, was that the AIDS virus was manufactured by the US government. And of course, there was one event uh, more than any that was uh, fertile ground for conspiracy theories, which was the assassination of JFK which the KGB did their utmost uh, to try to inculcate various um, conspiracies about including uh, forging documents from Lee Harvey Oswald. In the 1960s, it was the veteran anti-communist Richard Nixon who was the uh, focus of um, uh, particular concern by the KGB. Uh, the KGB offered to subsidize secretly the election campaign of his unsuccessful Democratic opponent, Hubert Humphrey. It didn't work. He said, thank you very much, but I'll, I'll do it myself. Um, and then, as we know, uh, once in power, Nixon was actually far less um, antagonistic to the, towards the Soviet Union than, than Moscow was fearing. Um, but by the 1980s, there was one US politician more than anyone else that inspired fear and loathing in Moscow, and that was, of course, Ronald Reagan. In April 1982, the KGB uh, chairman issued a series of directives in which he instructed all KGB officers, whatever their department, whatever their line, to participate in active measures. 
In February 1983, it was the prospect of a Reagan second term which caused the KGB headquarters, the, the center, to uh, issue instructions to its three residencies in the US to do anything that they could to prevent the election of Reagan in the, ele in the forthcoming election in November 1984. They were instructed to cultivate agents in either political party, the Democrats or the Republicans, on the understanding that absolutely any candidate in the election would be better uh, than, than Reagan. They attempted to gather compromising material, compromat um, on Reagan. Um, all they could find was uh, some drinking um, of his, about his father. Um, it, was, it was an unsuccessful attempt and not the kind of thing that, uh, that compromat was made of. Um, Soviet intelligence attempted to um, um, infiltrate the headquarters, as I said, of the, of the DNC and popular, by popularizing some slogans that could be used before the election campaign. Uh, the slogans being, Reagan means war, and various um, leaked stories to the press that the president was a corrupt uh, civil servant of the, servant of the military industrial complex. All of this had absolutely no effect. Reagan uh, won in a landslide victory, I think winning 49 of the 50 states. So this was a failed operation uh, to influence a US presidential election. Um, they didn't create a kind of Manchurian candidate that they perhaps were dreaming of. But that's not to say that they didn't learn from their, their, their mistakes. Um, particularly so a young KGB officer who was then being schooled at the Andropov Institute uh, in active measures um, who later said that he learned about past mistakes and reapplied them to the domestic front. That was uh, Vladimir Putin, who in a collection of interviews uh, said that he applied techniques that he'd learned about at the time in the early 1980s in the Andropov Institute to hijacking events uh, domestically. Um, it seems fair to say that, that uh, the, the, the KGB then uh, turned more attention to sowing seeds of distrust within the US public. Uh, as I said, AIDS conspiracies, um, and in particular about the JFK assassination. Uh, internal notes in the, in the Metrocan archive say that, um, uh, I think reasonably, that the KGB could say that more people uh, domestically in the US believed one of their conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination than they did the US government's own inquiry, the Warren Commission. Um, at this point, you're probably thinking this is something pe peculiar uh, to Russia. Um, and I would argue strongly against that. There's actually the idea of, of um, interfering in, a, in an election through forgeries goes back a long time, um, all the way to the early 1920s. Uh, at which point British codebreakers code had intercepted a series of instructions from the Communist International Movement to the local domestic Communist Party, the Communist Party of Great Britain. The problem was that these um, intercepts were polluted with forgeries. And this picture there is a headline that was um, produced four days before the election in 1924. It was a forgery. Um, and it was um, so, the so-called Zinoviev uh, telegram in which the Russian foreign minister allegedly uh, was asking the local communist party in Britain, the CPGB, to carry out what was known as agitation propaganda, agitprop, within the, armed, the British armed forces. It was leaked uh, to the Daily Mail, um, and in as I said, in October, just days before the election, um, um, was a bombshell. 
Um, the first ever British Labour administration fell. Most historians agree to say that this wasn't the actual, definitely the cause of the fall of the Ramsay MacDonald's uh, government, but it certainly didn't help. There's been an enormous literature on, on um, where this forgery came from. Was MI6 and MI5, were they involved in some way? Seems safe to say there may have been elements within MI5 and MI6 that were involved in leaking it. Um, the, the latest research, and I'd point you in, in the direction of um, the former um, official historian of the, the British Foreign Office, Jill Bennett, uh, has concluded uh, that the forgery was written by not uh, Soviet um, uh, intelligence officers, but by white Russians, anti-Bolshevik anti, um, groups um, in Eastern Europe. Uh, can talk more about this in questions afterwards. And it's certainly not um, just in Britain where this happens. Um, there's a long history of um, the US interfering in foreign elections. One of the first acts of the CIA um, after it was founded in 1947 was to carry out a covert action program um, in the Italian elections uh, in 1948. The aim was to fend off equally active Soviet interference in those elections, support moderates, uh, the Italian Christian Democratic Party, and undermined by any ways they could the uh, local Italian Communist Party. Uh, the newly established CIA um, used $10 million of funds captured from the Nazis, Nazi loot, uh, to channel into moderate parties, including uh, to the election campaign of the Italian Prime Minister then, De Gasperi. A uh, picture of him there. Um, the influence operations the CIA carried out in Italy involved a broad spectrum of um, uh, operations, from propaganda, posters, pamphlets, and stories um, put up uh, in Italian cities against communists, through to straightforward disinformation, forgeries implicating socialist candidates with the Communist Party. It's difficult to know the exact impact that this had on the election, um, but, it's, but we do know that the Christian Democrats, the people that the CIA wanted to win, won uh, 307 of the 574 seats. Truman sent his personal thanks to the CIA on the day that the victory was announced, and I would argue that this installed, uh, instilled a belief within CIA of the benefits of covert action, um, a, a belief that persisted for a long time to come. But again, it's not just um, the US that's involved in this kind of thing. One of the most extraordinary documents I found really in all of my research uh, is that it came out, was declassified uh, a, a year ago um, from the um, permanent undersecretary of the foreign office, British foreign office, in which this is, this is unusual for a number of reasons. Unusual in that uh, we don't get very many MI6, SIS documents declassified publicly and we also uh, don't get documents that involve these kind of things. This essentially is a, um, um, a policy recommendation from MI6 in 1948 to the Foreign Office about how it recommends um, conducting a covert uh, war against the Soviet Union. I don't know if the resolution has come out that well, but it involved things like framing of so Soviet diplomats um, with the aim of their removal and liquidation, bribery and blackmail, distribution of forged documents, kidnapping of high-ranking individuals to give the appearance of defection, and then most ominously at the end of the list, liquidation of selected individuals. 
It's important to say that we don't know whether this was just a wish list, a shopping list of what could happen uh, that, MI, that MI6 was dreaming up at the time, um, and to what extent they, um, they were actually carried out. But they certainly were carried out um, both by the US and the UK in various um, places around the world. Um, people know a lot, and it, it's a whole tranche of records have been declassified just earlier this year on uh, the, uh, the coup instigated by MI6 and the CIA in Iran in 1953. Um, less known, and I'm not in this talk so much interested in, in coups as such as to actual sort of covert manipulation of, of elections. Less, and on that note, I think much more relevant is the case of um, British Guyana, um, where the leader there in the middle, Chetty Jagan, British Guyana being a British colony, British territory in South America. Um, the leader there was a Marxist, and there were big questions about whether he was a communist um, or a, even a Soviet agent. Um, conspiring together, the British and the US attempted to redraw the election boundaries in Guyana so that he wouldn't win, but he kept winning, and he kept winning throughout the 1950s. In the end, the British handed over, uh, in a sort of staggering way, um, covert action in uh, British Guyana to CIA, who funded his opponent, uh, Forbes Burnham. There's a picture of uh, JFK meeting um, Chetty Jagan in the White House at the same time as he was um, plowing funds into his opponent, Forbes Burnham. So the British and the US have both been involved in manipulating foreign elections. But there's also a really ugly underbelly um, of, of this story as well, and that is British deception against its closest ally, the United States. Um, I think anyone in, 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 from school, school days onwards um, knows about the Zimmerman telegram, uh, which, which brought, was one of the main factors of the, bringing the US into the First World War. Uh, this involved, um, as we probably know, all know, a letter from uh, the German Foreign Minister Zimmerman to the Mexican government promising them lands in the southern US if um, they would join a war against the United States. This was actually a British deception op operation in many ways. The telegram was sent um, via the US transatlantic cable, which the British were tapping. Uh, they intercepted this and then were confronted with a classic dilemma about how to expose this without letting, first of all, the Germans know, and second of all, the Americans know. The first decrypt to land on David Lloyd George's desk when he became British Prime Minister in 1916 wasn't a German de uh, decrypt or intercept, it was a US intercept. Uh, the British were um, comprehensively reading US diplomatic cables. Um, the, the British um, uh, dreamt up an elaborate um, deception ploy, uh, leaking the, the telegram, the Zimmerman telegram, which is down there, to um, um, Woodrow Wilson, who had um, just in 1916 um, campaigned in his election on keeping America out of the war. Um, and it was leaked, they, they, they suggested that it came from a, uh, an agent, um, a human agent in the uh, Mexican embassy. Um, and this history, this episode, wasn't lost on the British 20 years later as the Second World War approached. Britain uh, fighting for its survival desperately needing US support in any way possible. Um, as uh, 
has been written comprehensively. Um, the first, um, or the, the leading British intelligence officer stationed in the US, uh, William Stevenson, Bill Stevenson, was head of the British Security Coordination, um, the so-called, his cover name, code name, uh, was the man called Intrepid. Um, and he, uh, Stevenson, played a leading role in setting up the wartime uh, US intelligence community, the OSS, and then the post-war CIA. Um, there's a, there's a um, picture of um, Bill Stevenson receiving a medal from uh, William Do Donovan, I believe, um, Big Bill and Little Bill, as they were known. And during the war, uh, Britain and the US started to share intelligence uh, through BSC uh, in an unprecedented way. And, they, and Britain and America would go on in the Cold War to have um, the special relationship with intelligence being at the heart of the so-called special relationship. Um, but in that early period before America entered the war, there was an ugly underbelly, as I said, to this story. At the same time he was sharing intelligence, uh, BSE uh, was sharing intelligence with Roosevelt administration. Um, he was also doing his best to um, minimize the impact of powerful groups in the US um, promoting US isolationism. In particular, the so-called America First Committee, um, led by the charismatic aviator and Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh. Um, BSC's efforts to minimize the impact of isolationists involved leaking pro-British reports to the press and involved, amazingly, uh, the young uh, Roald Dahl, uh, who, would, who was stationed in BSC at the time and, and wrote a series of um, letters in the British press. Uh, they were, as in the First World War, Bletchley Park was also uh, intercepting uh, US diplomatic communications. Um, as well as leaking stories to the press in the US with the aim of influencing public opinion, uh, they were also the forgery section of BSC, British Security Coordination, M section, uh, set about fabricating uh, a series of, of um, intelligence um, about Nazi designs for the Americas. Um, one was a letter from the, apparently, allegedly from the Bolivian military attache in Berlin describing a Nazi dictatorship uh, in Bolivia. Um, it was um, uh, set out with all of the correct um, watermarks and, and stamps. Um, FDR there uh, quoted uh, this letter uh, in one of his famous uh, fireside chats uh, broadcast live uh, on radio um, in September 1941. It went even further in the following month, in October 1941, again broadcast live uh, in his Navy Day address at the end of that month, in which he set out an imaginary Nazi master plan. Quote, I have in my possession a secret map made in Germany by Hitler's government by the planners of the new world order there. It's a map of South America and part of Central America as Hitler proposes to reorganize it. Carries on. Going to, he's going to reorganize it into five vassal states, bringing the whole continent under their domination. This map makes clear the Nazi design not only against South America, but against the United States itself. End of quote. The problem was that this was a um, fabrication of British intelligence. There's the map there. Um, it looks good, but it's um, uh, nonsense. Um, 
we can say with certainty that the centerpiece of FDR's most outspoken public attack on Nazi Germany before uh, Pearl Harbor were British intelligence forgeries. I'd argue this is the original fake news. So where does this leave us today? Well, uh, one of the take-home issues I'd like you to have is that it's not surprising that Russia's intelligence services today, which proudly see themselves as the heirs of the, the KGB, should be attempting to interfere with a US presidential election. This is particularly so given Putin's former KGB career. Um, it's also um, been set out clearly within the Russian um, military doctrine by the Chief of General Staff Gerasimov, if I've pronounced his, his, his name correctly, um, so-called hybrid warfare, in which military and non-military cyber activities would be combined. We saw this um, of Russia's annexation of the Crimea. Uh, the problem is that I think that what we're facing is an atmosphere in which disinformation is more amenable than any before. There have been conspiracy theories in the past. There have been attempts of disinformation. Um, but for whatever reason, and then the reasons probably lie outside of uh, historians' um, mere skills, uh, society today seems to be much more willing to, um, to listen to these. Um, and here are three examples that, that came out in the, in the presidential election. The Denzel Washington uh, was supporting Trump, completely false. The Pope was, was um, supporting Trump, false. And then the pizza, Pizzagate conspiracy, um, um, which really took on an extraordinary turn for those who don't know about it. We could talk about that after. Um, so what do we do about this? What does history say? Are there any lessons? And in particular, what I'm interested in, and those of us um, in, in the program at the Kennedy School, what we're interested in is so-called applied history. What does this history say about for policy implications for today? One of the major lessons of the later Cold War, um, well, actually the whole history of the Cold War, is, is how important it is to combat uh, propaganda or fake news given by countries that are attempting to, to stir up um, distrust domestically. Um, you need look no further than the US Information Agency, um, which was highly successful in the Cold War at promoting um, ideas about American values and so on. Um, and in particular, I, I draw your attention to the work of Britain's uh, Information Research Department, IRD, um, which is one of the most secretive um, British agencies in the Cold War. Um, it was a counter-information, counter-propaganda uh, department set up in 1948 and, and, and lasted until the early 1980s. Um, it was involved in distributing the works of famous authors like George Orwell um, uh, behind the Iron Curtain and, for example, issued a, um, a series of uh, what were called background books on specific topics that were um, um, uh, Russian disinformation or um, propaganda. Um, the, another particular, um, I think, particularly relevant agency to look at was the US Interagency Active Measures Working Group set up, as I understand it, in the early 1980s. The, the, group, um, the group's first counter disinformation effort against the Soviet Union took the form of various reports um, issued around the government um, about Russian uh, active measures, uh, forgeries. For example, those I mentioned earlier, uh, forgeries sent apparently from the Ku Klux Klan to the Olympics, 
um, and also the AIDS virus. Conspiracy theory. Um, a, a, a young, then young uh, Senator Joe Biden, uh, in his interactions with the Interagency Active Measures Working Group, said that actually um, examining the forgeries that were um, being disseminated by the um, KGB, they were actually relatively easy to spot because of spelling mistakes and so on. But he did pose a question, which I think has echoes for today, which is what will happen if they actually stop being so incompetent? And I'd argue that where we are today with social media um, is, um, is exactly there. I'll leave with just some, some general thoughts. Um, all, all major countries have undertaken influence operations in one way or another, active measures or covert action. But I'd argue that cyber now provides new opportunities for much older techniques. Um, I'll leave that up in case anyone wants to. Um, another lesson is the, the value, as I was just mentioning, of uh, agencies dealing with disinformation, IRD and the US Information Agency. The interconnectivity of the world today gives us a whole host of new problems. I'd argue that we are witnessing before, before us today uh, a revolution that seems similar to the development of the printing press in the 15th and 16th centuries. Just as technologies then, um, the people developing the printing press had no idea that how their technological developments would unleash a, uh, a revolution within um, the religious uh, churches of Europe. Um, I don't think we know where we're going with this new technology. Um, but the fact is that forgeries and disinformation can now tra travel more quickly, cheaply than ever before. The problem is, it seems to me, uh, that we, in the post-truth um, era of alternative facts, um, there's a fertile ground for disinformation. Uh, the secret of the success of agencies like IRD and the USIA is that they had a clear narrative on, on which they could um, um, hoist their, um, their counter-narrative to, to Soviet propaganda. Um, what we're seeing today any which way you look at it is a crisis of liberal democracy. So I'm not really sure what these agencies, what is the narrative today. So I'm not a um, particularly pessimistic person, but it does seem to me that we are living in pessimistic times. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Hello, I'm uh, David Smith of The Guardian. I, I just wondered, um, is there also a long history of um, not only election interference, but someone within the country holding election actually um, colluding, colluding. Okay. with the foreign aggressor, whether a, a particular candidate or a political party? And uh, have you reached any of your own conclusions about whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia? Yeah, uh, can I answer that one straight? Is that before I forget? Or um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll answer uh, that one. Um, collusion today. Uh, I mean, let's wait for for um, Robert Mueller's um, uh, report. Um, there, there do seem to be some strange um, developments. You know, meetings um, that were going on that were forgotten about and then uh, remembered. Um, it doesn't look good. Um, but as a historian and I guess as a barrister, I'd like to stick with the um, the facts. So we'll. Um, come to these kind of conclusions. I mean, I'm, I'm itching for uh, 
30 years down the line when the records come out. And I should, I should have said in, in the talk, I think I'm right in saying that there's going to be a further release of JFK files um, tomorrow, the next day, sometime this week. Um, so then we'll be able to revisit a lot of what I talked about, about what the, um, the, the, the KGB was um, uh, developing in terms of the assassination. So today's collusion, don't know. But it's a really interesting question, and I hadn't thought about it before, but there's an obvious letter uh, in 1924. There was, um, I think it's safe to say, collusion on the part of um, either MI5 or SIS uh, in leaking the forged uh, letter. Um, there were people within uh, MI5 certainly that were closely, or just they just left MI5 and went off to work for the Conservative Party, and, it's, and it suited their, their, their purposes uh, very well. There's no smoking gun, if you like, that I've been able to find. Uh, I point you in the direction of, um, as I said, the paper written by Jill Bennett on exactly this. Um, and so that's an interesting parallel, um, but a lot like what we read about today, I don't think there's any firm evidence showing uh, there was definitely collusion. But great question, thank you. Was there a question up the front? Yeah. Hello, I'm Cynthia Eford. I'm the president of the Association for Public uh, Diplomacy Professionals and 35-year veteran of the USIA. Thank you for coming. <laughs> um, and I, th I agree that we need to look more at information and covert uh, actions throughout the historic period. But I think that we have to look at it to see how often they regularly failed. How often who they, the, the, the uh, covert measures uh, regularly failed, and yes. I think it's very easy yeah. to say post hoc propter hoc. Yeah, and also because as any bureaucratic organization, when they evaluate their own work, yeah. they find amazing success. Yes, and it would seem to me that what was proved in the middle of the Cold War, and what I think we will find in the next few years, is that covert actions because they underline their own credibility, inevitably are less successful than, as USIA did, uh, openly attributed intelligent uh, uh, work. And by sort of melding these things together, I think that we can uh, come up with uh, false policy recommendations. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd love to um, carry on the conversation with you afterwards, because the USIA is certainly that, something that I'm just um, um, beginning to research. I know a lot more about the IRD, and, and to your point, IRD was always, from the outset, very, very clear that they wouldn't produce um, false information in order to counter Soviet information. It had to be uh, uh, grounded, rooted in uh, reality, in the, in the, let's use the term, the truth, <laughs> um, because it would just be, as you said, a spectacular own goal um, if there were uh, if it was discovered that um, actually this, this counter-information agency was um, also producing fake news. Um, but, but I don't, I mean, and, I, and I, uh, um, J uh, James Clapper said that what we need today is something, uh, in his own phrase, um, USIA on steroids. Um, but it isn't clear to me, as I was trying to say in a very glass-half-empty kind of way, what is the narrative today? Uh, with, with such a crisis in, in the US and in other governments, what is our message at the moment? And I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, so yeah, but thank you for the, for the comment. Question at the back. Thank you, uh, Larry Garber. So I wanna, you're, you're, the title of the presentation, I'm not sure you're responsible for, was the history of foreign interference in elections. And yet you only talked about the covert side of uh, that, that effort. 
And I think one of the challenges that we face, and, and clearly in this country, we moved uh, post-1970s, uh, you can attribute it to whomever you want, Reagan perhaps, yeah. uh, to overt interference in elections. We didn't call it interference in elections, we called it democracy promotion. Yes. And the, the challenge that we have today, and I come from the democracy promotion world, so I'm not trying to uh, you know, uh, criticize, but the challenge we have today is distinguishing between what is legitimate activity in support of democracy overseas and inappropriate uh, interference in elections. And unless we can draw some clear lines, I think we're going to you know, run into uh, the challenge going on. Clearly, Putin believes that what we did uh, in his elections, 2011, was also uh, inappropriate interference in those elections. Mm -hmm. And I think we need a narrative that justifies the democracy promotion activities without uh, then also uh, creating a false uh, equivalence between that and the covert action. Yeah, well, can, can I, I respond to that right now? Um, it seems to me that, that in, if the... Um the subject that we're talking about is interference in elections. Actually, overt and covert are two sides of the same coin. The, the, the aim might be the same, to interfere, promote democracy um, from the Western perspective in another country. Um, it's the means to which you, you, you do that. And the, the quote that I um, put up about the Italian election um, from the church committee um, made exactly that point, that um, um, if, if, we, if, if this were done um, to con conduct an operation in Italy o openly, um, it would have been counterproductive. So um, I, I think I understand what you're saying, um, but, but we, I mean, yeah. We moved from that perspective of the post-Cold War, you know, that you had to do these things covertly. Right. What Reagan and other argued, which is that you could do overt democracy promotion uh, to uh, counter yeah. Right. But I don't think. I mean, it depends on when you say we. Who are, who are we? I don't think the CIA and the Directorate of Operations would have ever given up their plans to um, uh, carry out covert actions in in countries that pose a threat to the U.S. So, I, I get what you mean. They're, but I, I see that there are very there there are there are different roads getting to the same trying to uh, policymakers or um, agencies trying to get to the same goal. Does that? Yeah. Oh no, no, no. I was sorry. If that was the assumption, then I'm I, like ab absolutely not. Um, no, far from it. I would imagine. So, <laughs> yeah. Question at the back. Hi, Robert Condon. Um, I'm just a tourist. Uh, can I ask how much uh, question on resources or budgets? How much more is the U.S. Uh, Russia spending? are less than Today. they were in the Cold War, yeah. Oh, that's a really good question, and again, I wish I knew that the, 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 the Russian intelligence services today are not the most transparent of um, <laughs> agencies, so there, there aren't budgets in that way, and actually the history of US and British intelligence still, the funding is one of the most sensitive subjects in the historical records. The secret vote in the UK about how to fund the intelligence agency, that's still uh, always blacked out in the documents. Um, but the, the example I gave you, that, that and I'm just working from information in the public domain on the um, Internet Research Agency, the building that I um, uh, put the picture up of, it's a staggering small um, 
um, operation in terms of funds, a couple million a year, um, you know, however many computers and, and people sitting around in shifts um, trolling social accounts. Um, that's just one, obviously just one example. Um, but I think that's my, my conclusion is that um, social media and our interconnection today, you know, you can get your news on your watch now if you want. Mm. Um, it, it allows for a much cheaper uh, way to do this than, it had, than, than in the past. That would be my gut reaction, although I don't have figures for you, Rob, I'm afraid. Thank you. Question at the front. Uh, yes, Edward Lozansky, American University in Moscow. Can you tell us a little bit, if you did some research on U.S. interference in 1996 elections in Russia with Boris Yeltsin? Was covered and overt? Uh, no, I can't. I don't really know very much about that, I'm afraid. Um, but there are, I, mean, I know uh, Tim Gottenhash in Oxford is getting interested in that subject, so I'd point you in, in the direction of his. But this is, I mean, as we were, we were talking just now, this is how Putin would, would view it. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what he's saying is, is there's, there's a logic to it. Um, but maybe you'd be able to tell us more about that. That, that lies outside my uh, uh, field of expertise. Uh, maybe we can carry on the conversation afterwards. Sorry, I can't answer your question more, more comprehensively. Question here. Uh, Ken, Ken Meyer, or TV producer. Uh, if I understood you correctly, uh, regarding that British document that was declassified, yes. on, uh, you said that was unusual. Yeah, very uh, unusual. How can you write, it seems like a yeah. lot of the most important information concerning intelligence is secret. Yeah. As I understand, the, yeah. the British are still keeping secret certain documents related to the sinking of the Lusitania. That's right. A hundred years ago. Yeah. I don't know about that, but yeah, I, I, I get your broader point. Yeah. So How, are you a little insecure that if you had access to these things, you mentioned the secret budget, we have one black yeah. ops here in yeah, our yeah. budget as well. Yeah. Um, it's like the, the I, I don't know whether you're familiar with the Saturday Night Live skit, the old one with the Gilda Radner, where she plays the, right. this person who's got strong beliefs, and then yeah. the anchor man points out a fact to her that yeah. totally, and she says, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Might yeah. that be the case if we really had access to all these secret documents? Definitely. Well, very briefly, I mean, um, yes, uh, our picture's incomplete um, uh, about the activities, certainly on the British side at the moment and on the US side but it's a, it's a hell of a lot better than it was uh, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, we owe a great deal of thanks to a former director general of MI5, Stephen Lander, who is himself a um, uh, historian, um, who in the late 1990s decided that um, they would start declassifying security service MI5 archive because of its historical importance. And there's been an avalanche of, um, of records now in the, in the uh, in the National Archives. But you've not only got MI5, you've got um, records from the Joint Intelligence Committee, the, um, uh, the overseeing um, uh, assessment body of the UK intelligence community. Um, the point I was making about MI6 is that MI6, or SIS at the moment, doesn't release records from its own archives, um, but there are lots of MI6 documents you can find in the um, files and records of other UK departments. But your broader point is, um, 
you know, how can we trust the, the or, you know, what, 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 to what extent are we just within the picture of the intelligence history past? Um, have we just got a small little smidgen of what was really going on? And we'll never know. Um, that's, the, that's the problem. You work, it, it, it isn't dissimilar, I'd argue, to um, medieval history, where you're working with fragmentary ev evidence. Um, you know, you do the best that you can. I've written one book, I'm writing another book, and I'd be really happy if someone comes along in 10 years' time and, and, and says, no, 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 uh, this was completely wrong. Uh, it's, a, it's a first draft of this new area of history. I'm not trying to write an authoritative history. Although I hope that the Cambridge history volume will be um, authoritative. Um, but I take your point, and um, you just need to be very careful when you're looking at the evidence. Why has this record been released? I found, um, for a more recent period, interviews to be particularly helpful. Um, particularly interviews with, with people where you can confront them with a document from the time where they say, no, no, this happened. And then you say, well, it's not what you wrote here 30 years ago. And they go, oh, well, actually, maybe. Um, and um, I've also found personal collection of papers in various libraries to be hugely helpful as well. It it's, it's continually surprises me, um, I'm happy, um, how much um, intelligence officers um, write in personal diaries and keep in the attic at home. Um, and then find their way into various university libraries. Um, so there's a gold mine of resources. Uh, I don't think you need to be overly pessimistic about the records that are released, but it's definitely a good idea to um, uh, approach them with, with caution and try to combine weaving together different archives wherever possible. Okay, we've reached our okay. uh, time limit, but uh, please join me uh, in a round of applause.